This is The Shift Podcast. Coming up today on The Shift Daily Podcast, what is procrastination and how can you do something about it? Psychologist Dr. Joseph Ferrari shares why New Year's resolutions often fail and why we procrastinate in the first place. Plus, what can you do to get stuff done in 2022? How can we best react to emergencies and tough situations? Sociologist Ashley Berard from the University of Victoria helps us understand the best way to deal with ongoing crisis like the pandemic. And there were a lot of amazing movies in 2021, but Steve Stebbing has a definitive top five that you need to hear. This is The Shift Podcast. Steve Stebbing. Hello, sir. Hello, Scott. How's it going? How, I'm great, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Yeah. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. And Happy New Year to, to Brendan and, and uh, Ryan as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're talking not New Year's resolutions, but like, mm. you know, sort of life advice, sort of things that, uh, you know, like uh, things that sayings, little little anecdotes that kind of carry you through. And it can be it can be, you know related to movies or not but do you have one mine that i shared was uh measure twice cut once uh other things <laughs> that i that i love to say all the time are there's no crying in baseball and also uh die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain uh those are a couple <laughs> of my favorites i don't know i mean they're kind of, kind of the first one is more life advicey but uh yeah do you have one do you have some advice uh i mean <laughs> some of them most of mine come from like like kevin smith has has a bunch of ones that i i would go to kevin um smith is so great he's yeah, so great i mean paraphrased from like uh i think it was walter gretzky's book is uh um don't uh be where the puck's going to be yeah Bingo. Bingo. That's um, like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Go to where the puck yeah. is going to be. That's yeah. the stuff, man. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's New Year's Eve. Well, tomorrow, New Year's Eve, Eve. And uh, we're doing a lot of show like, like previous year recap type of stuff. So uh, yeah. let's talk about some movies, man. Hell yes. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. What uh, maybe let's, let's do this. What were your best best movies of 2021 and they can they can be anything stuff that you think we absolutely have to watch yeah it's funny because i was just on uh cknw yesterday talking about kind of like the the top 10 like box office ones so it was a lot of the the blockbusters and stuff like that but the ones that i decided to bring to the show tonight are like my personal favorites and definitely ones off the beaten path uh in kind of like no uh order here um, the Green Knight is on my list for sure. Okay, uh, this movie was special, uh, and something I was waiting for for a long time. Honestly, okay, The Green Knight. Let's have a clip. Another year nearly gone already. You must seek him out. Was it not just a game? Perhaps, but it is not complete. You will find no. No, Why do you stop me? Oh, I, I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list and I'll watch it strictly for Dev Patel, but also mm -hmm. because uh, Steve, you say it's it's great. And and Barry Keegan's in it too, a very small but pivotal role. Uh, okay. And I absolutely love Barry Keegan. Um, and it's from uh, David Lowry, who, I mean, the guy hasn't made a bad film, in my opinion. I think the most commercial thing he made to this point was the remake of Pete's Dragon. Um, okay. But, I, I mean, visually, this movie is stunning. I, I mean, every time I watched that trailer heading into it, I get goosebumps. Like, I still do even just kind of hearing the the musical tones and everything in it. And it just... I don't, there, there's something about this movie that just just feels rich, uh, but I, I will say when I saw it in my uh, my theater here in Penticton, I felt like I was one of the only people that got it because okay. <laughs> like, okay. it was very silent when the movie ended. So I was like, <laughs> I don't know how that one went okay. over. Okay, good to know. <laughs> um, also on your list, and I I haven't heard of this one, but censor. Uh, 
You know, if someone did take her, then there's still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. Someone's losing the plot. Tell me about Censor. Yes, this is a Welsh-made horror film uh, from uh, writer and director uh, Prano Bailey Bond, uh, and basically. Um, in, in the, like the early 80s in the UK, uh, they had a, a controversy with horror films called uh, The Video Nasties, in which they were basically cutting to crap all these horror movies deeming it too violent for the for uh, public consumption uh so the main character enid is a film editor that is tasked with um taking these scenes out, these brutal scenes out of movies and everything but it starts to mess with her reality and starts to bring out latent memories and everything and starts to put her on either a path of discovering what her true true self is or descending into a spiral of madness and it is so incredibly done and the ending honestly is so haunting just absolutely haunting okay okay you love horror though hey i really do yeah okay excellent good to know uh so is it is it um like for people who don't love horror i think there are movies like horror movies that uh even non-horror people like myself can love or is this one that only horror people are gonna love Honestly, it's not, it, it doesn't go heavy into gore or anything like that. Okay. It, it is really plays on the mystery thriller. Like there is blood present in this one. And, sure. and, and a lot of like these videos that she's editing, you hear the sound off screen, which kind of reminds me of another great horror movie called the Burberian sound studio, uh, where all kind of all of the horror is really in the sound design. Uh, but Sensor is a one of a kind film and there's really not a lot like it. Like I would almost put it in the same category as like Ari Aster stuff like uh, Midsommar or uh, Hereditary or even right. uh, The Witch yeah. by Robert Eggers. Like something that is on the on the cusp of, of multiple genres at the same time. OK, cool, cool. Uh, also on your list here. And I'm very curious about this. The Nicolas Cage movie Pig. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone's star. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. Now, I've heard people who I trust tell me that this movie is incredible and Nicolas Cage is going to win an Oscar. Uh, Ryan O'Donnell <laughs> is thumbs upping and saying, yes, absolutely. And then I've heard other people say that this movie is total garbage. Uh, mm. So t- you're, you're like, no, it's all you think it's awesome. Hey, this movie is incredible. This movie is okay. absolutely incredible. Nicolas Cage does deserve his second Oscar for this movie. He. His performance in this one is just riveting. I mean, he plays a recluse uh, in in kind of the forests of of Portland, whose truffle uh, truffle hunting pig is stolen by a rival, and he goes on this uh, rampage through uh, Portland looking for this for this pig and looking for the person that stole it. But it's like a film of like vengeance and revenge, but not. A violent one really like maybe an emotionally and mentally violent film okay. but not like physically violent uh it's such an intense film and i thoroughly loved it and it's funny that nicholas cage can have so many renaissances in his career where he has these films every now and then that just kind of blow you away like mandy or this film or color out of space and just um he just goes for it every time. And I know that he is the butt of a lot of jokes, but I, I think uh, that that kind of uh, um, I think he still has the ability to surprise people. OK, very cool. I definitely will check that one out. Uh, OK, coming in at number four in your uh, of no particular order, the fourth film you have on your list, Red Rocket. With years unexpected. Your last job is over 17 years ago. That's quite a gap. Well, you know, I've worked almost every day for the last 17 years. I moved back in with my wife last week. No, I'm calling the cops. Four. Nine. Really? Eight. We decided to make a run of it. I just need a place to crash for a couple of days. What's the big deal? Nike, go f*** too. All right, look, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm an adult film actor. 
Excuse me. Now I watched the trailer for this and I thought it did look mm-hmm. pretty stinking good. It looks it looks yes. kind of like heartfelt and endearing, but uh, you put it on your best of the year list. Yeah, and uh, and I know I didn't put any of these in order, but I think Red Rocket's my number one for 2021. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it comes from writer and director uh, Sean Baker, who did uh, Tangerine and The Florida Project, which are uh, two of the greatest films in the last 20 years. The, the Florida uh, no Project, hyperbole, is like, fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible, and and there is that same kind of approach to this one uh, as it follows. Uh, uh, spoof movie star and vine star remember vine kids of course uh, yeah. simon the pre, the rex tiktok yes exactly uh, simon rex is the lead in this one playing mikey saber a burnt out former porn star that moves back to his small texas town who really doesn't care that he's back or want him to be back and it is uh, I can't even call this an anti-hero story. He's just an anti-human. He's not a good dude, and he's kind of looking for his the something to step on to bring him back to LA and bring him back to some sort of prominence. And it's just such a well-done character story. And uh, I know we we're talking about Nicholas Cage should win the Academy Award, but Simon Rex should also be nominated. Uh, because his performance is so incredible in this and it feels so real. And uh, Sean Baker is able to capture a scope that makes you feel that you're immersed in the story for the full time. And I hardly give these out, but I give this one a five out of five. Okay, fantastic. And finally on your list, The Harder They Fall. Proof is Buck. Man, old devil. This is going to be Buck's last day amongst the living. What exactly he do to you? Call it a professional robbery. I know who you are. That love. Outlaw hunts down those who trespass against him. With no mercy. Where is he? Where is who? Your boss. My boss. Clearly, you don't know me. Sounds pretty good. I'm not familiar with this movie. Tell me about it. Yeah, this one's on Netflix, uh, came out, and I believe, uh, beginning of November, and it is a straight up uh, art house Western uh, done by James Samuel, uh, who wrote and directed this one. Uh, actually, Jay-Z is a producer on this movie as well. Oh, uh, this is the and, one with Idris Elba and Regina King. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, yeah. I, and I mean, the cast beside, around them as well. Jonathan Majors is the lead, who is probably, uh, if anyone hasn't seen The Last uh, last Black Man in San Francisco, y- you need to. It, it is just, it is an incredible piece of cinema. Uh, but he is on the rise after Lovecraft County. And this film, uh, I mean, every moment he's on screen, he just burns it up. Uh, beside Idris and and Regina and Jonathan Majors, you have Zazie Beetz in this one, uh, Delroy Lindo, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Eddie Gathegi, uh, De- uh, uh, Dion Cole. Uh, I mean, this is like a stacked film that the action is killer. The drama is really good. And just it just feels like it hits on all cylinders and is incredibly vibrant. Uh, every every frame is just beautifully colored and uh yeah i really really loved harder to fall and i really after watching the trailer i felt like i would love it anyways this is the shift podcast Brendan Kelly, Ryan O'Donnell here, uh, keeping the show on the air and keeping the train on the tracks, uh, which is a thing that I struggle with, struggle with that, struggle with keeping myself organized. And it's one of the things that I have tried to do. I've tried to like get an organizer and get my life together, use the calendar app on my phone. I mean, I say get my life together, like my life is together, you know, like I'm not like missing appointments or anything like that, but I know I could be more organized. And this is kind of the time of year where we do those things. New Year's Eve, Eve, the new year is upon us and people are making all sorts of resolutions that are certain to fail because that's what happens, isn't it? We make new year's resolutions and then we just don't 
do them. We procrastinate. We come up with excuses. We self-sabotage. There's all sorts of reasons why. And uh, to help us kind of unpack that on the line with us is uh, Dr. Joseph Ferrari. He's a professor of psychology at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, and the author of the book, Still Procrastinating, The No Regrets Guide to Getting It Done. He's one of the foremost researchers on procrastination in the United States. Uh, He's been on Good Morning America. He's been on the BBC. He's been in the Washington Post, the New York Times, all over the place. So to help us kind of understand why we procrastinate, why we can't keep our New Year's resolutions, and why we just set ourselves up for failure over and over again, it's Dr. Joseph Ferrari. And maybe I will start, uh, Dr. Ferrari, by asking you this, just so we are all kind of on the same page. What is procrastination? What is procrastination? Well, it might be easier to look at what it's not. It's not the same as waiting, postponing, delaying, uh, uh, holding off on doing something. In most of those cases, you're actively doing something. With procrastination, you're not doing, and it's an active avoidance strategy. It's a strategy that people will use that's self-handicapping, that's maladaptive, that doesn't help people reach their goals. And it's it's intentional. It leads to... uh, arousal, if you would, in, for, in that the person is anxious and uh, scared about, you know, not doing it. They're worrying about not meeting this deadline. So it's not the same as delaying. Hmm. Uh, and recently, a, a colleague was saying, you know, if I'm on an airplane, <clears throat> my flight is four hours delayed in taking off. I arrive late, but did I procrastinate? No, I was delayed. So sometimes delay is not in our control. Now, it's a tipping point. That is true. I mean, you know, we delay and then it becomes some point it becomes procrastination. What we don't know in the literature is when's that tipping point? When does it become procrastination more than that? Researchers haven't found that out. And you're right. In the U.S., I'm in the U.S., I'm pretty pretty much the, the, the researcher. The re- For some odd reason, the United States Mer- psychologists don't really study this topic. Um, you'll find the Canadians, there's a bunch of Europeans who study the topic of procrastination, but for some reason, not much in the United States, and and I don't understand. It's a learned tendency. Let's get that out of the the way, too, for your listeners. You're not born a procrastinator. There's no gene that makes you a procrastinator. You learn it. Well, where do you learn? Like most things, you learn it from the house, in the home, where you grew up. And we usually blame a mom for these things, but it's interesting. The research shows dad causes kids to become uh, procrastinators. Now, not just any kind of dad. That's the the cold, demanding, firm father who says, you do what I say. I don't want to hear any lip. Will produce kids who become procrastinators and both boys and girls, because the only way the child can rebel or stand up for themselves, if you would, is saying, okay, I'm just going to take my time which makes the parent even more angry. What if there is no father? Then it's the, if the mother has that same lifestyle. But we found in studies uh, where there was a mom and dad, uh, it was dad more than mom. Uh, and one last thing on this, because I'm sure you've got more questions, but these are things people like to know. Um, there was a researcher out of Col- uh, Colorado who did do, look at, gen- I published those studies in mm-hmm. 93, 94. And there really wasn't much more on the development of procrastinators until 2017, when I hosted the international meeting on the study of procrastination. We meet scholars every two years. um, And there was another person from the U.S. who had just done a study looking at identical twins. And again, so they're the most closest, right, Uh, in terms of chromosomes. So if anywhere it's going to show up, it's going to show up in the identical twins. And what they found was, no, less than 50% of the tendency was that way. So I found it, and then others have found it genetically. There's no, you're not born procrastinating. That means you can change. That means you can become someone different. And with the new year, change. There's no gender difference. All right, a common 
uh, perception is that one sex does it more than the other. That's not true. We find equally men and women. So don't simply say, well, it's what men do. That's women's tendency. No, no, no. no. Stop okay. the excuse making. Procs, I call them procs, are great excuse makers. All right, okay. I'll, I'll pause here. No, is no, it, this is, I'm going this is I mean, I, there are so many questions related to everything that you said. But one of the first things that that I want to I want to pull out of that is you mentioned that when I ask what procrastination is and we t- sort of talk about the difference between that and delay and stuff is you say that it's intentional. And I want to I want to ask about that because I feel like there's this a, a, a difficult thing in my own life and I'm sure in many other people's lives where you 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 say this thing is intentional if it's intentional and i know that it's harming me why can't i stop doing it because it becomes a socially accepted habit that our society says that that's okay it's, 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 okay 20% of adults men and women 20% are chronic procrastinators. Mm. That means they do this at home, at school, at work, in relationships. This is their maladaptive lifestyle that they learned. And as you said, why can't I stop it if it's intentional? Because our society, 20%, that's higher than depression, phobia, alcoholism, substance abuse. And yet all of those are serious. Those are real important problems. We don't take procrastination as cultures seriously. We don't see it as a problem. Oh, the person's lazy. Oh, the person is just doesn't know how to manage their time. And it's got nothing to do with those things. My first book in 95, Procrastination and Task Avoidance, we found, this is still the classic textbook. Uh, this is not something that your readers would want. It doesn't even want. But if you're going to study this topic, this is still the book you need, even though it's from 95. We, since then, we've been telling people this is a learned tendency that our societies have accepted. And I find that 20%, by the way, not only in the U.S., in Canada, in England, in Australia, Spain, Peru, Venezuela, uh, Turkey, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, South Korea, uh, Japan. I'm trying to think of the studies where I've worked with colleagues. Yeah. Poland, Italy, um, I, Ireland, so pretty globally, pretty globally. Don't know about Africa. I haven't worked with any uh, colleagues there, but... So this is, seems to be this tendency. So why do you continue? Why does one continue to do that? Well, you got to first ask yourself, and let me, then I'll stop and let you get in here. <clears throat> you have to first ask yourself, am I procrastinating just on this task? Or is this something I do, as I said earlier, the chronic procrastinator, home, school, work, relationships as my lifestyle? If it's only one task, if you say, oh, no, no, I never procrastinate at work. Oh, no, 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 no. If my friends call me up, you know, I don't delay on that. Then you procrastinate, but you're not a procrastinator. A procrastinator is someone who's doing it in all those settings, all right, that this is their lifestyle. Um, so you need to address, and that's a different animal, a different person, if you would, than the person who's just doing it on the one task. So why? So I would ask you, are you, when you say you procrastinate, why can't I control that? The first question I ask you is, tell me when, where <clears throat> you procrastinate. And if you were to tell me, oh, I, just work uh, or just doing the laundry or I, I don't like uh, uh, cleaning out the gutters or you know, I, I delay. On, uh, then I'd say, OK, then you're procrastinating. But you're not a procrastinator. You know, the big problem people have is academic. A lot of students say, I'm a procrastinator. And I say, okay, if your boss called you up, would you go to work? Oh, yes. Um, if your friends said, we got two free tickets to go see, I, I don't know who popular people like, Lizzo or something for free, <laughs> would you go? Oh, yes. Well, then you're not a procrastinator. I see. It, it feels like a, differ- a differentiation between more serious and people who just sort of procrastinate sometimes. Now, for the people... I who just procrastinate sometimes because I am definitely one of those, you know, you mentioned where, where do you do it? And the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, paying bills. That's, that's a huge one. But then you say, Oh, work and uh, yard work and various tasks with children and stuff. Not, not at all, not at all. So I have these, these few areas, but if I'm able to not procrastinate in other areas and I'm not a procrastinator, 
why can't I get a hold of this one issue? Because the task is usually unpleasant. Yes. All right. A task avoidance. I don't like paying bills. My God, it's every month. I've got these things that keep popping up and, and people want my money. And what am I really getting for it? Oh, God, look, it's higher now than it was a year ago. So it's an unpleasant task. And we don't like things that are unpleasant as human beings. We like things that are pleasurable, enjoyable. Um, some people claim that procrastination is solely the only uh, a what we call a self-regulation failure problem. In other words, I can't regulate what I, my good things with the bad things. I have this inability to regulate uh, myself. I think that's true, but I don't think that's the only reason why people procrastinate. They procrastinate because tasks are unpleasant, especially as you mentioned, just this one area. You don't procrastinate if the kids want to go do this or that. You don't procrastinate if your friends are calling this. If your producers came to you and said, we want to now add you three times more a week or I don't know, or something like that, you won't procrastinate for sure, Um, especially if they pay you more. So, um, you know, it all depends on uh, the situation. Now, why? Going back to the why. Yes. Fears. Let's look at fears. We just, a colleague and I from SUNY Albany Senior, have just published a paper. It's coming out in February in a journal called Current Psychology. 40 years on procrastination and emotions. What emotions link procrastination? We systematically went through all the literature because it's been about 40 years that people have started studying this topic. And fears are clearly one of them. Fear of failure. You see, if I never finish, I can never be blamed for it uh, if I never do the task. So if the boss asks me to do something and I never finish it, he can never say, or she can never say, you're not skilled at it. They can say I was lazy. They can say I didn't try because procrastinators would rather have other. All right. Here's another contextual thing. Procrastinators are very social conscious. Hmm. They, They are very concerned what others think about them. See, you know, we've, okay. you've heard of the concept in psychology, self-esteem. That's yes. how I feel about myself. Well, procrastinators have that, but they also have social esteem that we call in social psych, how others view me. So circling back to what I was saying, all right, I'd rather you think of me as someone is lacking effort than lacking ability. Hmm. Now, let me talk about what I mean. Yeah. Right, these are basic concepts in psychology, social psychology. Lacking effort means I didn't try. And that's not a, that's not a positive, you know, uh, uh, image I'm giving off. But I'd rather you think I didn't try than I don't have the ability that I just sure. like that. Because lacking the ability, no matter how much I try, I ain't going to be able to do it. Right. So uh, it's a very interesting strategy. I'm going to give you this negative view, but I'm going to give you one that shows me as, well, you know, I could do it and listen to the proc. They will say, I call them procs. This is what they say. I could have done that. Oh, yeah. If I had more time, it would have been great. But this was the best I could do under these situations. See, it's never my fault. Procrastinators are great external blamers, excuse makers, we call it in psychology. They always have a reason. These aren't stupid people. Very smart. And they're very people-oriented. That's why they're very concerned about what others think about them. They're just not dependable. You know, they're not task-oriented that you could say to them, please get this done. Um, So. We okay. like them. The point is, we like them, but we just can't depend on them. Sure. Okay. Right. Does that help a little bit? Understand oh, certainly, certainly. Because we it, first of all, it makes it feel like a once we understand a problem, it, you can deal with it a lot better. And I think that segues well into uh, my next question. So, what can we do about it? For example, for example, if I have, it's just this one area for me. But I, I still, uh, I still just can't manage to get my head around it. We're coming up to the new year, and a lot of people are making New Year's resolutions. And we know, I'm sure you, you have tons of data on this that people go to the gym for a month, six weeks, eight weeks, and then they quit or they procrastinate and they say they'll get to it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. So if we're not these procrastinators who do it in everything, we just have these few areas in our life. What can we do about it? Okay, first of all. Um, that's, that's another great question, a great, great area you're going into. Uh, what can I do? Everybody wants the cures. I focus a lot on the causes and the mm. consequences, um, because you can't really 
give you street corner, um, um, pardon the expression, but this is what we call it, Cosmo magazine solutions. To sure. Stuff, you know? And that's what everybody wants. I want to be able to flip a magic magazine. bullet. Yes. And that kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why my book is still co- was called Still Procrastinating, because I would do lots of these kinds of interviews and reporters would always focus on the time management angle. Mm-hmm. Well, let's clear that up. Time management techniques don't work. There's a technique in science called a meta-analysis. It's a more than a literature review. You take articles, that, like, like a review, and you put them all into uh, their results. You put them into a, a special formula, and it lets you know across all the studies what was the effect. You know, did it really work? And so there was a, there's been a couple meta-analyses on procrastination therapy techniques. And the least effective, the one thing that doesn't work is time management. Hmm. So of all the techniques we have, just telling the procrastinator, you know, learn how to manage your time, is because that's a misnomer. We don't manage time. We manage ourselves. Hmm. So going back to your question, what can I do? Start managing yourself. Look, there's an expression. You can't control the wind, but you can adjust your sails. And the Japanese okay. like to say, if there's no wind, row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So in other words, y- you can't control what life gives at you, but you can control the way you deal with it and the approaches. So you can't control the fact that there's a snowstorm and I can't get to the gym today. That's true. But you can look at ways. What can I do in the house? The problem with resolutions is people make these extreme resolutions that are just not manageable, just not possible to do. You're not going to lose 40 pounds in a month. You might lose four pounds. That you can Mm -hmm. achieve. And so what we say to people is make small, observable, specific, simple behavioral goals. The reason most goals fail, most people's resolutions fail come February or March is because they made these extreme things. I'm a chain smoker of four packs a day, and I'm going to stop. No, you're not. You might be able to, in four months, get down to three, right. uh, two and a half packs. You know, So we make these extreme um, limits. There's a study that showed 84% of people meet their goals, but less than 50% of people make resolutions. Hmm. So the odds are, if you make them specific and if you make them observable and behavioral, you'll be able to reach your goals. Um, you know, just don't do these un, un, phenomenal kinds of goals. Now, if you're a procrastinator, let me just throw in something. Yeah, yeah, here. yeah, please. If you're a procrastinator, and we now know that they are very social esteem concerned, that concerned about is, then publicly post what you're going to do. Let your friends know, because you're so concerned about what other people think about you, publicly post, this is what I'm going to achieve for this week, and now people can hold you accountable. They'll contact you. They'll say, did you reach that? Did you, you told us you had eight bills to pay this week? How many did you do? Now, the odds are if you're going from zero to eight, eight to, you know, to, to pay them all, maybe not, but maybe you can get three done. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the problem is people can't always cut down the tree. Uh, you know, there's an expression, don't miss the forest for the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the procrastinator sees the, the, the forest. That's the problem. They, they see the big picture and they get overwhelmed. Oh, my God, I'm never going to lose all that weight. I'm never going to exercise. Oh, I have that marathon coming up. Holy cow. They don't realize you cut down one tree. And if you can't do a tree, Give me three branches. And if you can't do three branches, I'll take a handful of leaves. Just start. You got to start somewhere and because a body in motion stays in motion. One of the things that I just almost hear ad nauseum from people is how how different things are today versus, you know, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago when there wasn't Internet, social media, uh, scheduling, all these different demands that we have on our lives. So what do you say to the people who push back on um, just basically the idea that we procrastinate because our life is just so full these days? What do you have to say to that? Okay, there were three myths about procrastination and um, that I, I like to talk about, people always find interesting. Um, and I think it kind of addresses some of what you're talking about. Sure. One of the myths that people have today is that technology makes it easier to procrastinate. 
Yeah. We have so much stuff. All right, I'm going to answer that myth by a little story first. In 2006, so what is that? 12 15 years ago? years ago? Yeah, 15 years ago. A reporter from Connecticut calls me up and says, Dr. Ferrari, what do you think about the snooze button on alarm clocks? And I go, the snooze button? I don't know. What am I supposed to think? He goes, oh, that was the first technology for procrastination. You could press this button and gain nine more minutes, right? And it's 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So the snooze button. And I, and I thought, well, that's very interesting. That's right. So, you know, we've had technology. When people say technology today makes it easier, 50 years ago. And then I started thinking about it. Wait a minute. There was a time you had to put your, take, if you wanted to go see your neighbor seven miles away, you had to get your horse out and, and saddle it to the wagon and do it. Then you had this thing called the horseless carriage, the car, 1890s. All right. And you could jump in that and now go. Technology. All right. Then there was a thing where if I wanted to talk to you, Shane, I'd have to write a letter, wait for it to be picked up, sent to you, wait for you to reply. It might take a week, two, two weeks before I get an answer. Then we had a thing called a telephone that allowed me. My, and that was 18, also mm-hmm. 1870. My point is, there's always been technology. And the proc, procs or our excuse makers will use these technologies. There's always been things. I can't exercise. I can't live up to my resolutions because of A, B, and C. And A, B, and C will probably be very logical if you listen to them. But the other day, they did D, E, and F. And then we talked about G. And I remember H, I, and J. That they, There's always a reason for other things that they don't do. So that's one myth. Okay. Should I give you the other two? Or yes. Not? Oh, yes, please. Absolutely. Okay, people will also say, oh, but Ferrari, you don't get it. Our lives are busier today. We have so much more to do today than we've ever done today, you know, than in the past. Well, I think that's a pretty insulting comment Hmm. to say our lives today are busier. Because what you're saying is our ancestors, who were probably agricultural, didn't have a busy life and they didn't have to get up at four in the morning and make sure the animals were fed and the fence was working, can those goods, fix the roof, get the pump working. They had a lot to do. They did it. Sure. You see, because there has been for centuries, 168 hours. If you take 24 times seven, I believe it's 168. There's no more. There's no less. Our lives aren't busier. It's what we do in that 168 hours. That's the problem. All right. But again, it sounds like a good. Our lives are busy. They're different, but not busier mm-hmm. than our ancestors. And so I think that's a misnomer. There's been this 168 uh, hours since the Pope, uh, I think it was Pope Leo in 1500s created the calendar that we have, who based it on Julius Caesar, who based it on the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. So the third, so we've heard this myth that technology lets us procrastinate. We've heard the myth, well, we're, I'm very busy. The third thing is, yeah, well, you know, I work best under pressure. Mm-hmm. When I do, I got to have that last minute thing, the zing to get me going, man, it really works. Well, in 2000, in 2000, in my research lab at DePaul University in Chicago, we actually did experiments with procrastinators under, compared to non-procrastinators, under time pressure. And we found they don't do better. In fact, they make more errors. They do take longer to complete things, but they believed they did better than the non-procrastinators. So this notion of, you know, I got to have this jump start to get me going. Um, So I used to call it thrill seeking experience, but some researchers have said, and it's not really thrill. The emotion is not one of thrill. It might be an emotion of fear that, uh, that the person is doing this. But in any case, there's, I I believe there is some emotion on this time uh, pressure notion that people have. We just need some good research to look at that. Mm-hmm. So this that that's a myth that you don't work better. You don't get better deals at the last minute. Sometimes you will. Now, some people will say, Ferrari, you're wrong. You don't get. I remember the time when I waited and boy, this happened. And when if you ask them, OK, when was that? Oh, that was about 18 years ago. Sure. Yeah. Now, look at all the failure since. Don't right. give me this. Of course, life isn't 100 percent. You know, uh, it never works. Of course, it's going to work once in a while. But you play the odds in life. Right. What? Those are those are exceptions to the rule, not the yes. rule themselves. 
You know, I want to go back real quick to something before I was saying about uh, uh, fears and things like that. What people don't understand, and this, I'll take a minute or two on that. Please, please. What people don't understand is that research has shown that the most healthy individual, psychologically healthy, is the person who has 85% success and 15% failure. 85% success, 15% failure. What does that mean? That means don't try to be 100% successful. You're not going to be perfect. No one is perfect. You, No one ever, well... Jesus Christ was, sure. and so what happened to him. Okay, so most of us are not going to be perfect, okay? We are we are human beings. We are made to have our knees go down to fail, all right? But our knees are made to get us up yes. as well. So it's not a question of which you, if you're going to fail. The question is, how are you going to rise? So you made that resolution. You said, I got to be able to cut out all sweets. And last night you had three cookies. Okay, so you failed. But look at all the, but you could have had nine cookies that were in the box. You only had three. All right. So how do I rise today to be better off, to be different? All right. And it's interesting. 85% is not mediocre. That's 50-50. It means you succeed most of the time. Sure. But it's, what's fascinating to me is that 15% failure. The question isn't whether you fail, you know, you succeeded. It is what did you learn from the failure? Did the failure teach you something? You see, we grow from failure. If I had only sunny days in my life, all right, what would happen to plants in my life? If we had only the sun, all right, what, what would happen to a, a, a plant, a tomato? Right. Yeah. What would, what would happen? Well, they would die. Yeah. It yeah. needs the rain. We need the water. You need the non-sunny day. Yeah. Otherwise, you get a desert. It it it's, reminds me of a, a quote that uh, um, um, calm seas don't make for strong sailors. Mm. I, I I love that. Anytime I sort of feel a storm in my life, I remind myself of that. That you know this yeah. is this is where I'm learning to sail or learning learning to navigate. Um, all, all of this information it it actually has made this thing that has in a way uh, it becomes so daunting for so many of us because we let it, it snowballs, right. And it builds right. up and it builds up and it builds up. But I feel like with this uh, understanding of it, it becomes, it's sort of brought into the light and it becomes a lot more uh, manageable tackle. And you're not alone. Remember Certainly. 20% of people. All right. So when people think uh, so much, so often people blame, I'm no good. I just, you know, I can't, and I don't have the skill and, 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 and you're not alone. There's a whole bunch of other people, more than the press, more than alcoholics, more than substance abuse who are just like you. See, and I'm not telling people to be perfect. 85% ain't perfect. I'm saying you're going to fail in life. The question is, what well, does the failure become the title of your life book or simply a chapter in your book? Mm, I like that. And it's okay to just keep going and start again and start fresh and set new goals and just keep going. That's right. But you no see, I think with resolution in resolutions, we, we look at them and now you're looking at it now. Well, you should be calling me up in July. You should be calling me up in, in August. Right. Let's let's talk about these, you know, six months later. Where are you? Um, that's the real kicker. Too often in in our culture, at least in the United States, and I think Canada too, you know, and there's a tragedy that happens. Everybody rushes to help those poor people now, but they need help. In the future, too. Yes. And we don't think about that. Oh, no, weren't we wonderful? Didn't we do a good job? We helped those people. You know, so it, it, I'm getting off the topic. Maybe, no, but. it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, Dr. Joseph Ferrari, he's a professor of psychology at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, and the author of Still Procrastinating, The No Regrets Guide to Getting It Done. Certainly a book that I think could benefit a lot of us. It's available on Amazon and many, many other places uh, where you buy your books. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ferrari, for you know, you. some time and some insight. And it's it's. It seems like a very, very interesting field of study, and I'm glad that somebody is doing it. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. 
have you had a rough week? Have you been uh, kind of bogged down by COVID headlines and extreme weather headlines and all of that type of stuff? If you have, you're not alone. It's very normal. Uh, and we try to like push back against some of that with some of the fun and fart jokes and stuff we do here late at night. It's great to be a part of that. But uh, I, I sort of feel that. And one thing in the, in the midst of all the Omicron stuff that has really, really uh, puzzled me is this idea that um, I feel like, you know, two years ago or however long it's been since the uh, pandemic started, we were all in this thing. We were all in it together and everybody felt it felt at least to me like we were all on the same page. And there was this idea that, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to do whatever it takes to get through this. Uh, but here we are, you know, 18, 20 months later and something feels different. Omicron restrictions came out. Uh, we've had a crazy summer uh, th and fall and winter with uh, heat domes and flooding and all, all sorts of crazy things across the country, supply chain restrictions and such. And it feels to me like people are in a different place. Uh, they're less likely to. Well, he here's an example. Uh, a year ago at Christmas, people were like, hey, we're just going to do the small Christmas thing where we totally understand that that's what we need to do. We're going to socially distance and we're not going to have Christmas this year. I felt like people were like, forget that noise. Screw it. We're doing Christmas because we don't care. And I, I wonder what changed, what sort of caused this uh on mass change. Everybody seemed like they changed their mind almost at the same time. Like we, we agreed collectively that we were in and now it feels like we're not in, even though I know we are, but people's just outspokenly, the attitude just feels different. So here to help us kind of try and understand that is Ashley Berard. Ashley is a PhD student at the University of Victoria Department of Sociology. She focuses on community adaptation and response to crisis and uh, people's behaviors in response to, you know, all of this sort of stuff that we're talking about. So I'm just going to open it up. Ashley, like, do you, do you feel this? Is this just me? Do you see this in our culture? And like, what is going on? Why does it feel like we've all changed our minds at the same time? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I've been thinking about this after you emailed me, and I think there's one very simple answer to it that then we could unpack a bit. But I think the very simple answer is, is that we're tired. Mm. You know, I think everyone is very tired and it's two years that we've been in this now. And it's two years of kind of uncertainty and unpredictability, which is hard on people and it wears them down. But when you go back to the beginning of COVID and you think about that time, and if we, we all can reflect on that and remember that, and it was very scary and it was very out of control and very unpredictable and we didn't know what was going on. So there was a fear there that was driving us. And I think when we have a crisis or a disaster or anything like that, people tend to respond in different ways. But two of the main ways is that you look for a sense of control or you look for a sense of meaning. And so if you go back then, it was totally out of control for us. And so the restrictions provided us with some sort of tools or steps to take to give us that sense of control. Hmm. So I think that made sense at the beginning, right? We knew to wash our groceries. We knew to stay at home and we could protect ourselves and we could protect other people. And then we also found a sense of meaning, even though we were all at home alone, we at least were doing that together, even and on like a global scale. So it really felt like a community effort in order to sort of control this thing. And we didn't know how long it was going to be. So we found meaning in things like banging the pots and pans, or we all watched Tiger King together, right? <laughs> so there was that kind of sense of meaning. But then as time goes on, you go for two years. And I think if you speak even just in the Canadian context, we've had moments or pockets of normalcy. Like if you think of the summer now, right? We had times right. when it felt less like COVID was a thing. And so to then try and retract from that, it's going to be difficult and people are going to have resistance to it. And then beyond that too, I think you start looking at, we went from a community effort. So it felt more communal over time. I think we've gone very individual and that's for a lot of different reasons. People got vaccines at different times. Different countries have vaccines at different times. We're in different stages of the pandemic, even across Canada, our provinces respond differently. So we feel more an individual effort and we're somewhat back in our lives. So we also have other things to focus on beyond just COVID. So it becomes less of that sort of heightened awareness that we had at the beginning. And I think some of that can explain this a little bit of what we're seeing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you're totally right. There is so many questions out of what you have said there that I would like to go a little bit deeper on. So yeah, like that, that idea that we're all sort of going through different things at different times, but you mentioned how there were these kind of pockets of normalcy, uh, like the summer, for example. Um, One of the things that I know my peer group and a lot of people that I talk to, they sort of feel is that, uh, the way that the communication has come from the powers that be, whether that's your provincial government or our federal government. Um, and I'll say I have been on board the entire time. I've said, hey, these are the experts. They understand this stuff. I don't understand it. So whatever they tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. But we have heard and we heard it, you know, even just before Christmas, we need to do this now so that by summer, we will have this, but we heard that we've heard that multiple times over the last two years. So has collectively, have we lost faith or, or trust in our government to manage this thing? Or do we, did we always just think that they were just telling us what, what, like, did we never believe it? Or did we, have we, have we stopped believing it somewhere along the line? Do they believe that, that we're going to be fine by summer people, you know, you hear this, Oh, they're just telling us that because they want to give us hope. Is that true? Like, do you feel like that's what they're trying to do? Or maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think a part of where all of our resistance comes from is that another thing that we've lost over these two years is a sense of the future. And so we so in order to make meaning around this, having an idea of what's to come does help people. That is something that is tangible that we can grasp and that we can try to understand. But I think promises that we don't know if we can keep, that's a little risky. And that's where people start to kind of lose the focus. But I think it's an interesting point and, and something I've been thinking about as well is that we're a very information heavy society. So you can get the information that you want to hear easily and at any moment and and creating shared narratives actually helps us make meaning at this time. So if you can find a group of people who think like you around this issue, you're going to feel much better about having control and understanding your reality. So because of that, I don't know if the same messaging and the same communication that we're receiving now is going to be as effective as it was at the beginning of the pandemic because we move quickly in our society. So 2 years ago, that type of, you know, communication style worked well and it was I think pretty reassuring for what we were going through. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we're inundated with different messages. And I don't know that this is the communication that's going to help people grasp what's happening. So that might be a critique there for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's an interesting time. And, and I think in terms of that idea of looking towards the summer, I don't, I agree with you. I don't know if that messaging is the best. We did have a nice summer, at least right. here in BC, other than the fires. Um, but I think if we, One thing that I actually thought was well done was just a small example of something is prior to Christmas, uh, the bigger universities in BC, they said, we're going to go online till January 24th. That is actually, I think, a good way to sort of give some messaging around COVID because Mm -hmm. they didn't have to do that. It wasn't actually recommended by public health at the time, but it gave students and parents, that population, at least a sense of their next four weeks. So giving something tangible like that, I think, can be helpful. At least people know, okay, for the next four weeks, this is what I'm looking at. Whereas looking too far in the future, I don't think anyone believes it at this point, or we don't know what it's going to look like. That's the reality. Right. Yeah. And all of the people that I, I speak with, I hear this, this saying that, you know, don't, don't say it if you can't deliver on it. Just tell us you don't know. And I, I don't know if that's would be crazy for a government to say to its people, we don't know. We don't know when this is going to end. We have our projections, but I, I know for myself, I would feel like, okay, that's at least, at least you're telling me the truth that you don't know. Um, yes. But you, you definitely hit on some interesting things with what feels like to us inconsistencies in, in messaging. And we see, you know, like you mentioned this uh, information society where everybody has an opinion and they air that opinion on social media and, you know, people, like I said, my, my, my feeling is so many of us were on board and now so many of us are just like, not doing that, not canceling Christmas, not like we're upset that we can't send our kids back to school. Whereas we used to be totally on board with it. And one of the things that so many people are struggling with, I think is, and I'm, I'm cautious when I say this because I don't, I don't think this, but there's this feeling that 
were all of these people who were anti-vaxxers or are anti-vaxxers, like they're kind of sitting there like, told you so. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Right. And so now I feel like, like, am I the fool? Are we the fool for, you know, just going along with everything that we've been told? And, and like, even if I still think that, of course, COVID is a real thing and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get us through this. These people who said, hey, it's not going to be two weeks or six weeks or 10 weeks. They were like, you're going to be getting a booster. You're going to be getting all this stuff. It feels like, oh, like now they kind of have this, I told you so. And that kind of makes people who have been doing quote unquote, the right thing feel maybe a little bit silly for just going along with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a few things about it. Like, I think one way to look at it too, is just, is, is to imagine, is to think about progress. Like we have, if you look at the past two years for COVID specifically, we have made some progress, right. And it's, it's easy to forget that when we're in moments like we're in right now, I think it becomes very scary and very overwhelming. And the idea of reverting back is, is horrible. But when you think about where we were, you know, March, 2020, Mm. what that looked like, we have come very far. I mean, we just had, you know, July to September, October, it was fairly normal. We felt that kind of thing. So we have made the progress. But the other part of it is too, is that I think recognizing the emotions behind what we're feeling. And I think people, the reason we're angry, the reason that we have all these feelings that we're putting all this out there is because it's hard, you know, like we have experienced loss and grief. And a lot of us haven't processed what that looks like for us because we know over the past two years, people have lost loved ones. They've had great financial loss. We know that's heavy. We know that's hard and people need to grieve, but on little, there's been smaller traumas for everyone, missing a high school graduation, not being able to see your friends and family, anything like that. Those have been small losses that a lot of us haven't processed. So when something like the restrictions come out, which at the core, they are a public health issue. That's the goal of the restrictions is to help us keep people safe from a virus, right? But they have become so much more than that. And in a sense, like I said, I think the way that the communication comes out, it can almost re-traumatize people because what mm. they, they know what those restrictions mean and that feeling and that sense of dread is pretty heightened right now. So I think people need to also allow themselves to understand what they're really feeling and what's going on there too, which isn't a comfortable place <laughs> to be, but it's, it's been hard and that's the reality too. I I really like what you say there that at the core, these restrictions are a public health issue, but they are so much more than that. I think even acknowledging that uh, is a huge help. Like it just sort of reframes the whole thing in your mind as, oh, okay, this is at least some understanding of why I'm bothered by this because I am on board. Many people are thinking I am on board. We're all on board. We want this to end. We want to do the right thing. We want to get vaccinated, do all of the necessary steps, want to support the government and, and just be in line with what is going to get us through this. But there's this piece of us that's conflicted because, oh, it, it hurts and I don't know how to deal with it and I don't want to deal with it and, and all of that. So let me ask you this. Let's say hypothetically and fingers crossed, hopefully that Omicron is the petering out of this yeah. virus and it becomes endemic and you know we finally get to move on. What do you think um, the ramifications of this last two years will look like for our society? And is there things that we can be doing or should be doing to prepare ourselves for that? It's a hard one. And I think that's a big question because there's so many areas to look at, right? I mean, the economy, there's so many big things. I think at an individual, smaller level, it's definitely changed people. And I think that's maybe okay, right? I think it, it can reframe our perspectives on things like a crisis, on things like how we respond to disasters, all those kind of things. Um, and we have those still in our lives, like climate change and all of that as well, right. to keep thinking about too. Um, but I think we've missed a lot and we've gone through a lot and I don't know that we'll be able to really reflect on it until we're out of it and understand what that all looked like. You right. know, I think it's going to be changed because I think our socialization for two years has been greatly altered and that has to have lasting effects. It just has to, you know, I mean, on like a, policy level, I think mental health services is something that should be the second part after COVID right now. I just think there needs to be so much more attention. Certainly. Yeah. 
that would be one of the key ones. Um, but just like our social interactions, all of those patterns are going to change. And I think we've seen that in, in the people around you, you can see how some people have changed during this time. Definitely. And yeah, you notice it. So there will be those differences maybe in our identities and our socialization and all of that. And then on a broader scale, I think we know the things like the economy, travel, all of that is going to change and look different. Um, but I don't think we should forget how far we've come since March 2020. There has been progress made to a return to some kind of normal, but it's probably a different normal. No, absolutely. And, and I think that that is a, is a good point because you're absolutely right. If I look back to where we were two years ago, we didn't leave our house for a month, you know, and today <laughs> we can, like my wife and I were talking about it, there was caution tape like wrapped around our kids' playgrounds and stuff, you know, it was a scary thing to, mm-hmm. to see. And now, we understand the virus a little bit better. We, you know, we've moved sort of past that. Like you say, there has been healing and I'm confident that there is going to be more healing, but people say, oh, I just, I can't wait to get back to normal, but it sounds like there is no going back to normal. There is the quote unquote new normal. And I think even some people are scared, like even of that term, the new normal, people don't want the yeah. new normal. They want what they're used to, but we, we need to embrace that. Is that, would you, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that's the thing is that where where I worry for people is that this hyper focus on returning to normal doesn't let us necessarily live in the reality of where we're at right now. Hmm. So if you allow yourself to think my day to day life is what's normal, it kind of provides maybe a sense of comfort there and that you are creating your normal. And that's okay. that. Yes, it looks different on a global scale, but on an individual scale, we have our normals. And that's what comes back to that sense of control. Right. We are all just trying to have some sense of control in a world that feels uncontrollable. So something like, you know, I feel like I've been doing the right thing. So I'm going to have five extra people over that 10 limit. That's, that's my way of controlling this. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to check every single family member's vaccine passport before they come through the door. That is just someone else trying to have control or creating the narrative or, or going into the narrative that this isn't, this isn't real. You know, it's just another way to find control. So when you can understand people's actions in that way, it can at least help us to provide some sort of understanding of each other's, you know, approach to this. Certainly. I'm very individual, but yeah. Um, it's such an interesting time. And I just want to touch on this briefly before I let you go, um, because you mentioned, and I know that you specialize in a lot of the forest fire response in the interior and uh, how that has affected here in BC, where we both are, but we're seeing this climate change thing happen all the way across the country and all around the globe. And it's happening at the same time as COVID and it's going to be happening well into the future. What do you think are based on your research and what you know, what do you think are um, the immediate and maybe even long, longer term sort of uh, ramifications for us as a society, like us as a people in, in dealing with that? Because I saw so much of the same behavior. We had a trip booked to yeah. Soyuz and yeah. we canceled it. And so many people were like, what are you canceling for? It's fine. Like, it's going to be a little smoky, but it's yeah. fine. And then you saw other people who were like, absolutely not. We're not going. Yeah. But the information, we all have access to the same information, yes. you know? So it's so funny that um, it goes. And then, of course, now we look at it and it's like, oh, should we have gone? I don't know. Um and some people just think that this is not an issue and other people take it very seriously. Maybe, can you speak to that at all? Why, like why we're so divided about these things, climate change specifically? Yeah. Well, you know, it, I do think it still comes back to that sense of control. I think it's the same thing of, of trying to understand our world and what is real and what isn't. And it, sometimes it's more comfortable to think mm, it's probably not that bad, you know? And yet if you talk to anyone from the interior over the summer, they will tell you it was that bad. It mm-hmm. was not a good time to be there kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting. I think we are seeing some pretty catastrophic events. I mean, the flooding in this province as well. And I think that's the other thing of giving ourselves grace of, of feeling, you know, pushed back to these restrictions. If just in the BC context, this has been quite the year, you know, we had the fires and then we had the floods and it was both pretty major events. Um, so there's that too, but I actually think what's interesting about the climate disasters from my work that I'm seeing a lot of is there's a very strong focus on local communities and the yeah. actions that we can take at a local level and how much, you know, in a disaster setting, how much we actually support each other at the local level tends to be the most promising and the most beneficial. So that kind of, that gives me a little hope, you know, thinking about the COVID aspect of it is that then 
when these climate disasters strike, you really see another sense of community come up. It's not, we're not in a good situation around climate in our country. That's, it's scary. But there is some hope there in terms of how we respond as people and how we actually help each other, which is nice to see in a very divisive time, I think. Sure. Like you mentioned the the flooding and stuff. I actually grew up in Abbotsford. That's where I'm from. And just seeing on social media, the way that people exactly like you say, kind of rally and come together. Um, I'm just reminded it's like, because I, you know, it's very easy to get anxious about these things in these times. There's that um, Mr. Rogers quote, that look for the helpers. Exactly. You know, yeah. um, and so you think that that that's not just um, that's not just a nice saying. And as a, a person who studies this stuff, you think that that that's a realistic or that's a real phenomenon that really does happen. From what I've seen, yes. From from what I saw in the wildfire season this summer, absolutely. I think there's just a focus on neighbors helping neighbors. And it was interesting, you know, a lot of people's information came from local Facebook groups that were just situated in one neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's where they would reassure each other and they would tell each other what they were seeing and they would spread that information. And that was the, the best part for best point for them to get access to that communication. That's an amazing thing. You know, that didn't need any broader structural force to come in and, and tell them to do that. They just did that on their own. And I think that's really nice. Like, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Can help with the healing and help with that, you know, that sense of control. And, and I can see how it, how it all ties back. Um, This has been incredibly informative, Ashley. Thank you so much for taking some time uh, to share some thoughts with us and uh, whatever the new normal looks like, here's hoping that uh, it's going to be here soon and that uh, it's going to be good for all of us. Yes, definitely. All right. Ashley Burrard, she's a PhD student at UVic with specialization in climate disaster and societal response to that. So thank you so much for taking some time, Ashley, and uh, have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 